let's get into the word together. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 30, continuing our provoking grace series. Genesis 30, if you have a pew Bible, page 15. I'm going to pray quickly and we'll move into it. Father, thank you that you have already been meeting with us this morning. Lord, meet us in your word. Open our hearts. Give me grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 30, 25 through 42. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I served you, whom I have served you, that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will, be, will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed all the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, so the flocks brought from striped, forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. This is God's word. I think it's fair to say that in the last week, as Hamas invaded Israel, something is changing about the world that we are living in. Experts would 
classify this time and space that we are in globally as multipolar. Multipolar being that from the standpoint of those who are experts in this field, the power that the United States had had, had once possessed in the world has diminished to a, an extent such that other powers around the world are emboldened and cropping up, thus multipolar. And so instead of having one superpower that is there to sort of protect and make sure peace happens around the world, you have multiple actors around the world with different interests, different motivations, doing things that they feel that they could get away with. Example given, Hamas, or Russia, or fill in the blank. Over the last many years, we've seen around the world, our country as well as many other countries, the rise of nationalism. We've seen um, differences in, uh, you know, there's dispute over elections, there's lots of turmoil happening. There are things happening in around the world where wherever you are situated geographically, you feel powerless. What can I do? How do we fix this? What can be done? Yet what we do have are lots of accounts of suffering, of injustice, of murder and, and such. But not only do we have this destabilization, if you will, or maybe you could even say a balance of power around the world, when we look at our own country, we have other layers of power shifting. In the last two weeks, we've seen a void of power in our Congress for the first time in history, the firing of a speaker. We also see the polarization in our current politics, and we have waiting upon us the precipice of another presidential election year that certainly with all the extracurricular things is lining up to be unprecedented. What do we do with a world like this? How do we engage in a world like this? And even if you're not thinking about the world around you, maybe in your own personal life you have something that is debilitating, that is daunting, and you feel hopeless. Well, this passage gives you hope. It speaks to being powerless. It speaks to what God's grace does for the powerless. In fact, the title of the message today is Grace for the Powerless. There are three points I want us to discern here from the text, the desire of the powerless. Secondly, the grip of the powerful, we see that happening in the text and in our world. And thirdly, the inversion of grace. The desire of the powerless, the grip of the powerful, the inversion of grace. If you've been following along with us in this series, you know, the thesis that we, we keep coming back to is that what provokes grace? Nothing. But grace provokes us. God doesn't move in our lives because of our moral uprightness or because of our anything that we could ever do or say. But he gives his grace to us freely. And it's provoking when we see it come to play in our lives or in others' lives. 
Why do I keep mentioning this? Well, because the human heart is impervious to this idea. We want to earn our way in life. We want to justify our existence, and the idea of grace is so foreign, we need to come back to it regularly. Let's consider the desire of the powerless. The very first verse in our text today, which if you were here for last week, there was the whole drama of the birth wars. Jacob goes to Haran to find one wife. He finds himself with four. And he wants to multiply. He does indeed multiply. There are 11 kids in one you know, section of scripture that are born here, and there's one more on the way, four different women. And the one that he fell in love with, Rachel, is the last one to have a baby, Joseph. And now that she has a baby, Verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. In other words, it's time to get out of here. The thing that I came here to do to get married and to multiply, now that's happened. Now it's time to go back. See, the whole point along the whole time, his mom, if you've been following the story or you're familiar with the story, Jacob has lived his life as a trickster and he's tricked his brother Esau out of the birthright and the blessing. And as a result, Esau wanted to kill him. And so his mom says, listen, Jacob, his mom favored Jacob. You got to leave. You got to get out of here. Go to, go to Haran. Let your brother cool down so he doesn't kill you. And I'll send somebody to come and get you when he's, when he's over this. Well, that doesn't convince him. And then she, she, she tells Isaac, the dad, okay, you got you to gotta tell Jacob. He's got to get out of here. And so Jacob blesses him, or sorry, Isaac blesses Jacob purposefully, intentionally, knowingly. He is the son of promise. Okay, Jacob, God's going to be with you. He's going to send you off, but he's going to bring you back to this land and you will prosper. And then when Jacob is on the way in this middle-of-the-nowhere place in Bethel, God meets him in a dream, and God says, I'm going to bring you back to this land. I will be with you. I am going to bless you. All families of the earth will be blessed through you. So the whole point all, all along was that Jacob would return, and now that Rachel has had Joseph, Jacob says, it's time. That's the desire. The desire is to be free. And maybe what's not so clear on the surface is that the relationship between Jacob and Laban, though they are familial, this is nephew and uncle, it's more of an indentured servant relationship, right? Because if you're familiar with the text, Jacob or Laban comes to Jacob when he's first arrived, hey, tell me your wages, what can I give you? Don't work for me for free. I'll pay you. And it so happens to be a wife or two or four are the wages. Well, you see in verse 26, what does Jacob say? Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. Actually, three times if we were in the original language, the word served or slave is referenced here in that verse. It is letting us know the true nature of their relationship. Jacob has indentured himself to Laban, 
And in ancient Near Eastern times, um, it certainly becomes codified in the Deuteronomy law later on, but it was typical that if a slave, a slave married the, the daughter of his master and he had children, if the slave wants to go free, the, the, that wife and children belong to the master, not to the slave. And so Jacob is saying, listen, I want to go free, but I want my wife and wives and kids too. It's kind of, yeah, multiple wives and children. I want them and I want to go, but nothing else. So there's no sense of I, I'm going to get something. Now, what was also true in ancient Near Eastern times is that when a slave would go free and he's taking care of flock, that you're kind of owed 10 to 20% or, or something. There's some type of material um, contribution that you should receive, but none of that is in play here. Jacob wants to be free. We all have power. We have different kinds of power, different levels of power, but we all have it. I mean, we have relational power. You might be the oldest of your siblings. You have more power than your others, maybe. Um, some of you are shaking your head. You don't have that. Maybe you're the baby of the family, and you're the spoiled one, and you have that kind of power. Just to, you know, reassure you. Uh, if you're 18 or older and you live in this country, you have the power to vote. We live in a democratic republic. Uh, if you are alive and you have a smartphone, you have the power of opinion. And the entire marketplace is built around ratings and reviews. Anything that you want to buy, just about. You're checking how many stars, right? We all have power. But even as we all have power, we are all powerless in so many respects. When you think about the larger picture of the world, the larger picture of our nation, the things that go on politically, geopolitically, etc., We are all in one way or another or in multiple ways on the short end of the stick of the power dynamic in this world, much like Jacob. And much like Jacob, we, there, is, there are desires that you have. You want, it may not be freedom as in the case of an indentured servant, but there could be a desire for justice. It could be something you're experiencing in your workplace or there could be a desire for peace, something you're experiencing in your family. There could be a desire for restitution, something that was taken, you're hoping to get it back or whatever the case might be. But even deeper than this position of powerlessness, in a lot of ways, Jacob's relationship to Laban is a schenectady for our spiritual condition. The scripture talks about your and my spiritual condition as being one of powerlessness. You are slaves to sin, the scripture says in Romans chapter 6. You are dead in your trespasses, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. You are spiritually blind, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. You are a part of the kingdom of darkness. All references to being powerless. And so the realities that you face in the material world or however probably a better way to say that, of powerlessness are really kind of a harbinger for the spiritual condition of humanity. 
what is God's solution? Well, before we get to that, we have to see the flip side of the coin, the grip of the powerful. There's the desire of the powerless. What are the powerful doing? We think about the powerful in our world. We think about with North Korea being in cahoots potentially with Russia to give armaments for the war against Ukraine. You think about things happening in multiple uh, um, countries in, in, in China, of course, and what's happening in, in Israel and around the world. And by the way, my stating of these realities is not to make a value judgment per se on the geopolitical situations because some of you are from the various countries. And actually what's I think really beautiful about God's kingdom is that we could be worshiping together all representatives of, of countries whose geopolitical situation doesn't align with one another. But anyways, point number two, the grip of the powerful. Jacob is pursuing freedom. Laban is not letting him go. Laban says, listen, in verse 27, he's trying to butter him up. I found, if I found favor in your sight, Jacob, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. In other words, you can't go. It's, things are too good for me because you are here. Just tell me your wages. Now, a little just comment on the learn by divination. I mean, if you have, um, probably most of your text will have a footnote and say that there could be another reading of that, that, Jake, that um, he's become wealthy because of Jacob. And that has to do with the word there. Uh, if you look at the, there is a definition where this is divination, learning by divination, but there's another definition that could come from Akkadian, the same word means to grow wealthy. And that probably fits. But in either case, the theological point is God has blessed Laban because of Jacob. This is the blessing of God working its way out. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And because Jacob being that family of Abraham is present in Laban's house, Laban is getting wealthy. That's not uncommon. It happens in other cases. You see, Joseph, when he becomes a slave, God blesses Potiphar's house. Then when Joseph goes to the prison, God blesses his work in the prison. You see other instances in Genesis when the people of God are present, others are blessed. That's what has happened. And so he's saying, you can't go, Jacob, tell me what you want. And they start to negotiate what it is. Verse 31, he says, what shall I give you? Jacob says, you can't give me anything. You're not going to give me anything, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pasture your flock, and I'm going to keep it. But then he starts to lay out the terms of this negotiation. This is very intriguing because he says, let me pass through all your flock today, Jacob, saying this to Laban, notice that, to remove from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Okay, sheep and goats. I did spend 16 years in New York City. Not my specialty, but I'm growing, okay? Been here for three years plus. Um, sheep mostly are white, right? We can establish that. Um, spotted and speckled, not common, right? That's not common. Goats, at least in this species of goats, mostly dark colored. They're mostly brown or black. Like, 
monochromatic, one color. Jacob is asking for the rarities. He's asking for the spotted and the speckled among the sheep, the spotted and the speckled among the goats. And so effectively what he's saying is sheep that have black spots on them, those are going to be mine. And goats that have white spots on them, those are going to be mine, right? All rarities. Most sheep come out one color, not this way. Of course, Laban, hearing these terms, he's saying, good idea, <laughs> verse 34. Good, let it be as you've said. That sounds good to me. But notice what Laban does in the very next verse. So not only is Laban saying, you can't go, here's the deal, you need to stay, I want to continue to be blessed, what's your wages? Okay, this is a great deal for me, these wages. You're silly, Jacob, why would you say that? Verse 35, but that day, who was supposed to remove the sheep and get these spotted and speckled? It was supposed to be Jacob. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. What is Laban doing? He's saying, okay, you want all the spotted and speckled? I'm taking them all. And he put three days distance between now he's cornered off all spotted and speckled sheep. He says to Jacob, you take all the white sheep and all of the dark goats. Three days distance, go pasture them. You wanted spotted and speckled? You're taking monochromatic animals, and we'll see what happens. Jacob, good luck. That's cruel. I mean, it's already rare enough to produce spotted and speckled. You're taking the ones that have, have, have phenotype spotted and speckled. They've come out that way. You would think you've taken the best opportunity away for Jacob to prosper. How does God respond? I mean, do you feel the hopelessness or the sort of helplessness or at least the powerlessness of Jacob's predicament? You have to feel that because you feel powerless. You are powerless. I mean, what can we do about the conflicts around the world? What can you and I do? I mean, I know we can pray. I'm not saying that we can't pray, but I'm saying like physically, nothing. Protesting won't do anything. Activism won't do anything. You know, you think about the theories of the academy, critical theory or what have you, that's not gonna do anything. They don't care. They're not watching, they're not listening. They don't care. There's nothing you and I can do. We are powerless. What's God's position in all of this? What does he do for Jacob? Well, that brings us to the last point, the inversion of grace. The answer is in all this, this breeding stuff that happens. And uh, you, you see, so Jacob, he takes these fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees. So he's got branches. And he sets up branches in the feeding troughs. And he cuts stripes on them. And so the idea, at least on the surface, is that if a sheep breeds and they are looking at the stripes, they're going to produce stripes. Right? How many of you buy that? <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. I just, you know, it is University of Illinois. We're right across the street from. I know you guys. Animal science is probably not, you don't, this is probably not in the animal science curriculum. <laughs> I'm sure. 
I know that much. So you've got that, and then for the goats, if they see the spotted and speckled sheep, when they're mating, they're supposed to produce spotted and speckled. Now what's interesting here is, so we, on the surface at least, there's this superstition about how this all is going to come about. But there's also some science, at least some science, because what does Jacob do? He's not indiscriminate in this whole mating deal. It says in verse 41, whenever the stronger of the flock would breeding, he would do this. But if they were weak among the flock, he wouldn't. So at least he understands that aspect of the pungent square, right? So, okay, strong, powerful flock, I want more of those, I'm gonna do this whole thing. Weak ones, I'm not doing that. Those are gonna be Laban's. Now there, there is some speculation that this is actually all science. Um, that there's this idea about, and I'm not gonna be the best to communicate it to you, but um, of the hybrids and their vigorousness, that that could actually be an attribute of the fact that they're a hybrid, that these stronger ones uh, are, are um, there's something about that they are physically demonstrating that they have this recessive gene of spotted and speckled. And so maybe Jacob knows that. Now, the text doesn't tell us what he knew and what he didn't know. Is this a ruse? Is this superstition? He has some level of science. That's not even the point. The point is verse 43. The point is, it says, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. If you've read the story of Genesis, this is the same description of Abraham. When he goes to Egypt and all of a sudden God prospers him and he has donkeys and he's got flocks and he's got male servants and female servants. So much so that when Sodom and Gomorrah get taken by the five kings and Lot and his family get taken, Abraham takes 318 of the skilled, trained men in his household, born in his household. So you think about all the servants goes and gets Lot and all the possessions back. He's got a lot of power in his household. This is not measly stuff. He's very wealthy. And you also see in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 26, Isaac, he goes uh, to Gerar, and then the Philistines don't want him around, and then he finally settles in Beersheba, and it says that he grew exceedingly wealthy. He had flocks. He had servants. So this line here, the, the, the author is letting us know God's hand blesses Jacob even with everything against him in his powerless position. God's promises, in fact, in, fact, um, in the Hebrew, there's a word here, parats. In chapter 28, verse 14, when God met uh, Jacob in the dream, in the staircase, he says to Jacob in, in chapter 28, verse 14, he says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And he says, um, behold, I'm with you and I'll keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. Um, and he says that, oh, and he's, 
spread abroad. So your offspring will spread abroad. That's the word parats. This is sense of spreading out. In the, the text that we read today, when Jacob says, everything I've done in your house, Laban, I've created, it's increased abundantly. It's that word parats, verse 30. Then here in verse 43, the man increased greatly. It's that word parats. And, and the writer's letting us know the thing that God promised is happening. God's promises are coming true even in a position of powerlessness. God is able to work out his promises. Now, in, in Scripture, that's true in other cases. The, the next in the line, Joseph, the one who was born, he becomes, the story becomes about him from chapter 37 to the rest of the book of Genesis, and he becomes a slave, and he gets into prison, falsely accused, and God meets him and blesses him and makes him number two in command in the most powerful nation in the world at the time. God inverts the situation of power by his grace, which is for those who were originally reading this, the people of Israel, probably in the wilderness, a reminder, hey, we were enslaved and powerless for 400 years in Egypt. Yet God came and inverted the power structure by his grace. It's an encouragement to you and I in the world that we live in that, yeah, you are powerless but he's not. Jesus came demonstrating powerlessness, weakness. He was physically poor, materially poor, physically weakened, given over to the hands of the authorities, crucified, a demonstration of utter weakness, rejection, a horrific death. He came all the way down to a place, the weak, infinitely more weakness and powerlessness than you and I will ever face. Yet when he returns, like Jacob returning to his home, when he returns, he's coming in power. And so for a believer in a world of big and scary things, where our push notifications and headlines create anxiety, provoke fear. We're called to trust in the promises of God that he can work out his ways even with all of the great powers of the world doing whatever they want to do. In this election year or coming up as Christians, we have to resist the urge to grab power. Just let that sink in. We have to resist the urge to grab power. We have to be willing to trust that God's plan can go a lot of different ways than what we would anticipate. And therefore, no matter who has power and what they decide to do with it, that we could trust that God is able to make his grace abound for the powerless and create a power inversion where one day he will come back and set this world in the way that it was supposed to be. You are called to cultivate trust 
in the midst of when you are powerless. You're called to live godly, to, to, to live righteously, and to be patient. You're called to not fret or fear. In our view of international affairs, our hope should not waver or even be set on how powerful the United States is in the world. And I know that not all of us were born here, but I, I recognize this is just a sort of political reality that we've, the world has lived with and it's changing, as many say. But that's not our hope. There's a whole different kingdom with a whole different power structure. And when the king returns, he will restore order and he will bring justice. And let me say this one last thing before I pray. God's given us a prayer book in the Psalms. And it's interesting how it's been set up. The first Psalm, the word that is sort of a motif there is meditate. It calls us to meditate on God's word. It doesn't even call us to prayer. It's not even a prayer so much in the way it's structured. Psalm 2 is also not so much a prayer, but then Psalm 3 begins with prayer. But these first two psalms, they give, they're the gateway into the psalms. The second psalm, it takes that motif of meditate, and it actually puts it in those who are in the power structures and says, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? And so the godly man or woman in chapter or, or Psalm 1 is the one who meditates. The powerful in the world are the ones who plot. Same word. And so you are called to not fret over those who are plotting. You're called to meditate on God's word. And in that, you will have hope. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that you have a message for us in no matter what we face, no matter how powerless, hopeless, or despairing we are. You have a message of hope. You call us to trust you, to be patient, to know that you are working even when it seems like the world or our lives are out of control. Lord, would you give us grace to trust you this morning, to meditate on your word and rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of reflection questions. Did you have a moment here to meditate? What areas of your life are you on the weaker side of the power dynamic? And which areas are you on the stronger side? How might you trust God to meet you in areas of weakness? And how might God use your influence in areas of strength?